Hello, and welcome to episode 35 of 10-0. I'm Maria. And I'm Caitlin. Obviously, if you don't know that by now. Yeah. It is so nice to be back in a routine with us. Please don't be like our, you know, boss and confuse our voices, because they're nothing alike. Anyways. <laughs> um, yes. Jesus, Lord. It is definitely good to be back. And in a routine. Finally, again, after a month. Fuck that never again i feel bad because we couldn't like actually record because i sounded like i was dying same i couldn't (laughs) talk for four days i lived on cough syrup and cough drops so there's that yeah just saying sudafed dayquil tylenol (laughs) and throat lozenges I hate that word. Me too. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it either. <laughs> it's right up there with the M word for me. Like, so Maria decided that she's like, hey, here, try these. And they're called like Fisherman's Friend and they're like black licorice flavored. And they numb the back of your throat and it's fantastic if you can get past the taste of them. It's like, it's. It's like, so strong. It burns. It's like mentholated black licorice. It's not a very nice flavor, but damn, it doesn't work. But they are phenomenal. <laughs> My mom, like, thank God for her. She did so much for me. She went and bought me three boxes. Oh, God. I think they make cherry flavored ones. Yeah, but you can't find them anywhere. I told her, I'm like, if you can find any flavor but the original, get those. And all she could find was the original ones. Mm. She checked Walgreens, CVS, and Walmart. Yikes. Yeah. Well, I have a doozy. So we're going to hop right into this one. That that sounds perfectly fine for me because mine's pretty long too. I have 10 pages of notes. I use Notepad because I'm just that kind of person. Well, I have to be organized because you all Mm. know I'm neurotic when it comes to notes and organizing things. I have, I don't know. It doesn't tell me. It tells me like the lines and the columns and that's it. Oh. Yeah. Weird. So. Anyways. We're going to start with our true crime fact of the day. Yay. Which goes back to January 28th, the right date this time. Of 1958 in Lincoln, Nebraska. 19-year-old Charles Starkweather and his 14-year-old girlfriend, Carol Fugate. Fugate? Wait, 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 what? You heard me correctly. 19 and 14. Uh, they killed a couple and their maid at the beginning of their crime spree, which would leave 10 people dead. Their road trip ended the next day in Douglas, Wyoming, when they were both taken into custody. <clears throat> Starkweather committed his first murder on December 1st of 19... I think that's supposed to be 50... No, December... I guess it kind of helped your situation. Mm-hmm. I was one of the first people he talked to when he got out. So, I'll go first since you went first last time. Okay. We are going to Laporte. Oh, God. Do you know where I'm going with this? Kind of. Maybe. So we are in Laporte, Indiana. 
for those of you that don't know where Laporte is. Is there more than one Laporte? Indiana? No. Obviously not Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. I think there's a Laporte, Wisconsin. Oh, Google. I think. Don't mind my squirrel brain. Many states. Moments. I think there's Wisconsin. There's oh. Indiana? Mm-hmm. New York has one. Okay. It doesn't, like... Like, why can't you just give me a list of states? Go look at that. There is a LaPorte, Wisconsin. Oh, maybe not. LaPointe, sorry. Yeah, all it's doing is giving me is Indiana, Texas, New York. Yeah, that's okay. Um, Wisconsin. Anyways. Have you heard of Belle Gunness? No. So, she was born <laughs> Brynhild Paulsdatter Storseth. What? Yes. On November 11th of night. Mm, check that. 1859. Yes, I just checked myself because I'm stupid. Um, <laughs> in Selbu, Norway. She was a very large woman. She stood six feet tall and weighed over 200 pounds. That comes into play later. Okay. Um, she was the youngest of eight children. So not a whole lot um, is known about her childhood. Oh. Um, however... In 1877, she is reported to have attended a dance and was pregnant. Um, according to witnesses, a man approached Belle. She changed her name to Belle when she moved to America. Okay. Um, a man approached her and kicked her in the stomach, which resulted in a miscarriage. The name of that man is not known. However, he was said to be from a rich family and was never charged with the crime. Oh. Um, he died shortly after she miscarried. Mm-hmm. Um, his cause of death was said to be stomach cancer. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Um, in 1881, Bell moved to the United States where she took the name Bell to sound mm-hmm. more American. She initially worked as a servant in um, Chicago. Mm-hmm. So her first husband was Mads Ditlev, I think, Sorensen. Um, she married him in 1884 in Chicago. Two years later, they opened a candy store. However, the business was not successful. Within a year, the shop mysteriously burned to the ground. Oh. Bell said it was due to an oil lamp that was left burning. However, no lamp could be found. Hmm. She's going to be very... Um, insurance fraud happy um the couple collected the insurance money from the candy store and purchased a home they had four children together caroline axel myrtle and lucy caroline and axel died in infancy allegedly of acute colitis however the symptoms of colitis are also very similar to that of poisoning given bell's later crimes it is thought that she poisoned the two babies The couple adopted a young girl named Morgan Couch, but changed her name to Jenny Olson, according to the 1900 Chicago census. 
On July 30th of 1900, Mads died, supposedly on the only day in which his two life insurance policies overlapped. Coincidence? I think Absolutely not. The first doctor to see him thought he had suffered from um, strychnine, I think is how you say it, poisoning. However, um, his family doctor that had been treating him said he had an enlarged heart, and he concluded that the death was due to heart failure. So, mm-hmm. either or, I guess. Yeah. Bell applied for the life insurance money the day after Mad's funeral. Hmm. Yeah. She wrote a check for $8,500, which in today's money would be $278,800. Bell took the money and bought a large farm on the outskirts of LaPorte. It's reported that the carriage house and the boathouse burned to the ground within six months of her owning the property. Tell me there's not something fishy going on here. Oh, Lord, that is so interesting. So, on to her second husband. In 1901, Bell regained contact with a man named Peter Gunnis, hence the Bell Gunnis part. Mm -hmm. They were married on April 1st in 1902. Because, you know, that's not some kind of symbolism there. Right. Um, one week after the ceremony, Peter's infant daughter from his first marriage died of unknown causes while alone with Bell. Oh. In December 1902, Peter died. According to Bell, he was reaching for his slippers next to the kitchen stove when he was scalded with brine. Um, he was then struck in the head with a sausage grinder that fell off a high shelf. How do the how do the two correlate? Like I am trying to put, like, the, my my brain's going string theory here. I'm trying to keep up, and it's <laughs> ding 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 ding. ding. <laughs> it's like my fucking brain's playing <laughs> pinball, and I can't, I can't, I can't make sense of it. I'm like, like maybe he like shot up real quick and hit the shelf. Maybe, maybe? I don't know. I mean, you got to be pretty beefy to smack a sausage grinder off a shelf. Right. Um, That'd be like attempting to like bump my kitchen aid with like my elbow. Like what? (laughs) Um, Peter's brother Gust took custody of Peter's oldest daughter. Why? Why you would name your daughter this? I don't fucking know. Swanhild. Why? Uh, She's the only child to survive living with Belle. Peter's death earned Belle a three thousand dollar check. The locals began to question Peter's death, rightfully so, as he was a healthy and smart man, according to him. The district coroner reviewed the case and determined that Peter had been murdered. He then convened a coroner's jury to further look into the case. Jenny, that girl that they adopted, Mm -hmm. or that her and Mads had adopted, was overheard confessing to a classmate. My mama killed my papa. She hit him with a meat cleaver and he died. Don't tell a soul. Oh. Jenny was brought before the coroner's jury, but denied having made the statement. Belle managed to convince the coroner that she did nothing wrong. However, she failed to disclose that she was pregnant with Peter's son at the time of the trial. That's kind of important, don't yeah, you think? <laughs> a little bit. In May 1903, Belle gave birth to a baby boy named Philip. 
1906, Bell told the neighbors that Jenny had gone away to a Lutheran college in L.A. Spoiler alert, her body would be later found on the property. More than likely. Just saying. Um, in 1907, Bell hired a farmhand named Ray Lampier. Oh. That will come into play later. So, she's a widow twice. Yeah. Okay. She has all these kids. So she puts a ad in a singles column oh in all the Chicago newspapers. Well, that doesn't happen. The ad read, Personal, comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in Laporte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit. Triflers need not apply. Sure. <laughs> <sighs> Several men responded to this ad, unfortunately. <clears throat> Around the time that suitors began coming to the farm, Bell had begun ordering large trunks and having them delivered to her home. One delivery man noted that Bell was able to pick up and carry these trunks, quote, like a box of marshmallows. <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, got to do what you got to do, I guess. Um, farmers would travel the road in front of her farm at night, mm -hmm. and often that she could be seen digging in the hog pen. Well, you see what happened. They'll eat a full human body in eight minutes or less. So you and your fucking weird ass facts. All you have to do is pull the teeth and crush the skull, and you're fine. I, but... <laughs> they won't eat the teeth. Do I need to be concerned? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, just know that I know how to hide a body. So don't get on the bad side. Just kidding. Christ on a cracker. For legal purposes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a joke. Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, okay, so the first known suitor was John Moe. He was from Elbow Lake, Minnesota. He brought with him more than $1,000 to help pay off Belle's mortgage. However, Belle introduced John to her neighbors as her cousin. Within a week of arrival, he disappeared. Hmm. Wonder what's going in those trunks. Totally didn't call that one. Or Lady. <laughs> the next was George Anderson. He was from Tarkio, I think, Missouri. He was also an immigrant from Norway. During dinner one night, Belle brought up the issue of her mortgage being paid. George agreed to pay off the mortgage if the two were to actually get married. That night, George woke up to Belle standing over him in his bed, holding a candle and with a strange expression on her face. Without saying a word, Belle ran from the room. Also without saying a word, George immediately got up and left and leaving most of his belongings and went back to Missouri. <laughs> Don't blame him. He's the only one to survive. Thank God. <laughs> Our next one is, um, I, I have a hard time believing that his first name was Ole, O-L-E, Ole, I don't know, oh. um, but he was an elderly widower from Iola, Wisconsin. He was last seen alive on April 6th, 1907 at the LaPorte Savings Bank. He had mortgaged his land in Wisconsin and signed over the deed as well as withdrawing several thousand dollars. Budsburg's sons did not know that he had gone to visit Bell. 
because that's your first mistake is not telling right. somebody where you're going. Uh, when they found out where he went, the boys wrote to Belle asking if she knew the whereabouts of their father. She stated that she had never seen their father. Oh. Yeah. It's, it's great. So our last um, big suitor, I guess, mm-hmm. was a wealthy farmer from Aberdeen, South Dakota. South Dakota. He wrote to Bell, and the two exchanged letters for a while. On January 13, 1908, Andrew received a letter from Bell reading, To my dearest friend in the world, no woman in the world is happier than I am. I know that you are now to come to me and be my own. I can tell from your letters that you are the man I want. It does not take one long to tell when to like a person, and you I like better than anyone in the world I know. Think how we will enjoy each other's company. You, the sweetest man in the world. We will be all alone with each other. Can you conceive anything nicer? I think of you constantly. When I hear your name mentioned, and this is when one of the the dear children speaks of you, or I hear myself humming it in the words of an old love song, it is beautiful music to my ears. My heart beats in wild rapture for you, my Andrew. I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. How long is forever going to be for this one? Like, a day? In response to this letter, Andrew came to Bell with a check for $2,900, which he withdrew from his local bank. A few days after he arrived, he disappeared. However, in the following, Bell was seen at the bank depositing two large sums of money, one for five hundred and one for seven hundred dollars. Hmm. Yeah. Um, around this time, Bell had also began having issues with Ray, her farmhand. Yeah. Um, it was widely known that Ray was deeply in love with Bell. It was often said that he would do anything for her, no matter how gruesome the task. Due to his jealousy, when a sumer, sumer, sumer. Suitor came calling. (laughs) Bell fired him on February 3rd of 1908. Shortly after he was fired, Bell went to the courthouse to attest that Ray was a menace to society and demand that he be locked up. Ray was then subjected to a sanity hearing in which he was found sane. Following that trial, Bell again went to the courthouse and stated that Ray had come to her farm and threatened her and her children. No dying. I'm dying. Are you good? Yeah. <laughs> Do you need a cough drop? Oh, God. <laughs> like, all of a sudden, that's all I felt was, like, the mucus burn. Yeah. <sighs> um, I hate I know. I hate Ray was then arrested for trespassing. He returned to the farm after he was released multiple times to see Belle, but she continued to tell him to leave. Around this time, Andrew, I'm still going to butcher this name, Hel, Helgeline, I think. Mm. Um, his brother, Ale, I think, um, began to grow concerned that his brother had not returned home and wrote to Bell. Bell wrote back to him, stating that Andrew was not at her farm and had probably returned to Norway to see family. Ray continued to come to the farm and made many threats, including that he would kill Bell and burn the family to the ground, or burn the burn the family, burn the farm <laughs> to the ground. Burn the family to the ground. Well. Because of this, Belle went to the courthouse to draw up a will that left her property to her children. However, she never went to the police to report it. Well. 
probably one of those people that think, you know, just talking to a dispatcher is filing a report. Dear God. (laughs) I don't know about any other states. In Indiana, if you just talk to a dispatcher, you're not making a report. No. You have to talk to an officer. Be it over the phone or in person. God bless America. Okay. Next. So, April 28th, 1908. Um, Joe Maxson, who had been hired to replace Ray, um, woke to the smell of smoke in his room. Uh-oh. He opened his door to the hallway and discovered that the house was fire. Joe attempted to make contact with Belle and the children, but he never got a response from anyone. He, in his underwear, jumped out of his second story window. He ran to town to get help in his underwear. <laughs> the look on your face. <laughs> when he returned he grabbed a ladder and went to every single second story window to try to find any sign of bell or the kids never found anything four bodies were found in the rubble of the house three of them were their children the fourth body was the body of a woman that did not have a head oh this head was never found all right, then. This is where it gets fucky. Okay. Okay. The county sheriff determined that Ray was responsible for the murder and arson and probably arrested him. All neighbors agreed that the body could not have been Bell's. As I said earlier, Bell was a large woman. Right. Six foot, 200 pounds. Yeah. The body measured five foot three and could have weighed no more than 150 pounds. Okay. I get, I know where you're going. Bodies shrink when they burn. I know you know from experience. Well, but. <laughs> that wasn't what I was going to say. Yes, bodies shrink. But it also depends on the position that the body was found in. Right. Like. If you if you're burning, your body's response is to move to try and put it out. Right. So, unless, but there was no head on its body. Right. So the body was already dead. So it was just laying there. Right. So it's not going to shrink very much. I mean, the skin will shrink. The inside. I mean, never if... mind. I don't, I don't want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, anyway. So. This body would have shrank nine inches. There's no way. And lost 50 pounds. That, that's possible, I suppose. That, that's completely possible, depending on the degree that it was burnt. So. However. Yeah. The coroner did a somewhat autopsy on this body. Okay. They examined the stomach contents. Uh-huh. The stomach was full of the... Um, strychnine poison oh yeah bell's dentist volunteered to identify the body if they could find any teeth in the rubble the sheriff's department hired a local miner to begin sifting through the rubble as he began sifting he began to dig up human bodies oh shocker color me shocked yeah uh, May 19th of 1908, a piece of bridge work was found that had two canine teeth still attached. 
Bell's dentist identified the teeth as hers. As a result, the coroner concluded that the headless body found in the rubble was, in fact, Bell. There, there's no fucking there's no way. There's no fucking way. There's just not. Okay. Your bones don't shrink. Okay, we're going to go there. <sighs> okay. So, if you are in a fire and you burn, yes, it's possible to lose <clears throat> Absolutely. You're, you're losing the water in your you're body. You're losing, A, you have moisture in your body. B, you're losing skin. You're losing muscle tissue. You're losing fat. fat. You're you're essentially going to ooze. Okay? Ooh. It's not pretty. Oh, I hate that word. Stop using it. Well, I, <laughs> I hate that word when you say it in conjunction with the body. <laughs> how many how many crime scene photos have you looked at and that's what bugs you yep that's it <laughs> that's it right there so when Ugh. when you're looking at stuff like that it is possible to lose the weight however it's not possible for your bones to shrink your bones, nine inches your bones would not shrink that much your bones are porous yeah so there is moisture in them. Just not that much. <laughs> so there is not that much. So you're not going to shrivel up like a plastic bottle. No. You're not going to... You're, you're basically <coughs> just going to become super brittle. Like if you were to throw a glass beer bottle into a fire and let it sit there and cook. Right. And then you just, you know lightly Touch tap it. it and it just poof yeah. disappears. Poof. But it but it all depends on how long you're in it. Yeah. There's no telling how long this body was burning for one. Well but hopefully. if they hold on. If they could determine that the body was still five foot three inches or whatever Chances are it wasn't there, like, too terribly long. Right. So, um, Andrew's brother, Ale, okay. I think, um, arrived in the port soon after the fire and told the sheriff that he believed, or what he believed happened to his brother. Joe Maxson, who was the farmhand hired mm-hmm. to replace Ray, came forward and told the sheriff that Bell had him bring loads of dirt in a wheelbarrow to a large area surrounded by a high wire fence where the hogs were fed. Maxson said that there were many deep holes in the ground that had been covered. Bell told Joe that these hoses were filled. Ho- I said hose. Holes <laughs> <laughs> were filled with garbage, and he was to fill the holes in with dirt. Listen, I, I know we're in the early 1900s here, but do we not have any brain cells? No. But, I mean, it would make sense if. She put the body in and covered it with trash to try and, like, yeah, throw off the scent of, you know, whatever. But even still, yeah, no, if you would just never mind, if she would have starved her pigs, there would be no trace of people. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. 
Um, the sheriff gathered a group of men and took them to the farm to begin digging. Mm-hmm. On May 3rd, 1908, the diggers found the body of Jenny Olson. They then found the bodies of two unidentified children. Soon after, the body of Andrew Helgeline was found. After his body was found, a total of 12 bodies were found that day. On May 19th of 1908, seven more bodies were found in two coffins in graves in the Pine Lake Cemetery in the Port. Hmm. Yeah. So, Ray goes to trial. Okay. Mm-hmm. May 22nd of 1908, Ray was arrested again and put on trial for the murder of Belle and her children, as well as the arson for the farm. He denied the charges, and his defense was hanging on the fact that the headless body discovered was not Bell's. A local jeweler attested that the gold in the bridge work would have melted in the fire. Accurate. Yeah. As there were several pieces of jewelry that had been melted. Several local doctors conducted an experiment where they attached a similar bridge to a human jawbone and placed it in a blacksmith's forge. The teeth crumbled, uh-huh. the porcelain that was on the bridge came out pitted, yeah. and the gold had melted away. So, they're right. Right. So, that had to be... Yeah. Um, Joe Maxson testified that he had seen the retired miner that was sifting through all the rubble uh-huh. um, pull the bridge out of his pocket and plant it just before it had yeah. been discovered. Huh. So... Uh, Ray was convicted of arson, however, he was acquitted of the murders. On November 26th of 1908, he was sentenced to 20 years in the Michigan City State Prison. Good luck with that. May the odds be in your favor. Right. Um, he actually died, like, a year and a month later of TB. Oh. So there's that. Lovely. Um, January 14th of 1910, so like a month later ish um a local reverend came forward with a confession that ray had made to him while he was visiting ray on his deathbed okay you couldn't come up with this sooner like well i mean not that it would help at all i know but and him dying kind of breaks that that's kind of like a therapist thing like if it's a yeah safety thing then you're supposed to say something i think i think that's how that works um Anyway, he said that the reverend, don't mind me, the reverend said that Ray told him of Bell's crimes and swore that Bell was still alive. Ray said that he had not murdered anyone. However, he had helped Bell bury many of her victims. Ray also cleared up the question of the headless corpse that was found in the fire. Mm-hmm. He said that Bell lured a warm woman, God bless America, from Chicago on the pretense of hiring her for a housekeeper. Okay, fine. According to Ray, Bell drugged the woman and bashed her in the head, then decapitated her. Bell then supposedly tied weights to the head and threw it in a local swamp. Yes, but no. Okay, how does he know all of this? Supposedly he was there. If it happened... Like... Right before the house got on fire. Right. And if Bell did all of it... Why didn't you say anything? Why didn't you say anything? When you were arrested twice. Why Why are you just now... Like, why is it just now coming out? I don't know. 
Uh, she then chloroformed her children, smothered them, oh God. dragged their bodies, along with the headless body of the woman she lured from Chicago, down to the basement. She dressed the corpse in her old clothing and removed her false teeth. There you go. Placing them by the corpse to which the body was identified as Belle. But her bridge would not have made it through the fire. No. That's my problem. Yeah. Unless, okay. Unless it was underneath the body. Yeah. Because, like, if something is obstructing right. the fire from getting to it. So, for years after the fire, sightings of Bell popped up throughout the U.S. As late as 1931, Bell was supposedly living in Mississippi, where she owned a large amount of property. The LaPorte Sheriff at the time received many reports a month of Bell's possible whereabouts. The body that was was never identified. The body, believed to be Belle, was buried next to her first husband at the Forest Home Cemetery in Forest Park, Illinois. Um, November 5th of 2007, with the permission of Belle's descendants, the headless body was exhumed by forensic anthropologists and graduate students from the University of Indianapolis in an effort to find out who she really was. Um, well, there's that. Um, there was a sealed envelope that was found somehow not burned um and they were hoping that envelope had enough dna to be compared to the body right you know almost 100 years later it's fine um obviously there was not enough dna to test that right so we still don't know who that chick is i don't think it was her no there's no way there's no way her body would not shrink no. <sighs> Garbage <human. laughs> What is that, number two now? Yeah. <laughs> okay. You ready for my favorite hotel? Yeah. Are we going where I think we're going? Yes. <laughs> In 1903, Breland Oscar Stanley was diagnosed with tuberculosis. Well, that's unfortunate. Consumption. Kind of a a little morbid introduction to this hotel. I mean, it kind of fits, but, you know, it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) The most recommended treatment at the time was fresh, dry air with plenty of sunlight and a hearty diet. Like most others with his diagnosis, Stanley decided to move the Rocky Mountains. Okay. He and his wife, Flora, moved to Estes Park, Colorado in June. Hey. And over the summer, his health improved greatly, and by 1907, he had recovered completely. I don't know if that's a good thing or creepy. I don't know. My stepsister went here. I'm really fucking jealous. <sighs> I told Marcus that's my next vacation without my kids. We will be going to the Stanley. And I can get a room for like 300 bucks now. I wonder how far it is from. Like, not very well. Continue. I'm listening. Anyways. 
He was not content with the rustic accommodations, noisy pastimes, and relaxed social scene of their midsummer home. So Stanley resolved to turn Estes Park into a resort town. In 1907, construction began on the Hotel Stanley, what would be a 48-room grand hotel that catered to the class of moderately wealthy urbanites who composed the Stanley social circle back east, as well as to... It's only two and a half hours from Breckenridge. (laughs) As well as to, like, attract people seeking the same healthful climate. Yeah. The land was purchased in 1908. Okay. Not really sure how, like, the hotel was being, like, constructed. Mm -hmm. 1907 land wasn't bought yet. But whatever. This is why I don't like getting... The homestead thing? I'm getting there. Okay. The land was purchased in 1908 through representatives of the 4th Earl of Dunraven and Mount Earl appear who had originally acquired it through the Homestead Act of 1862. There we go. Between 1872 and 1884, Lord Dunraven claimed 15,000 acres of the Estes Valley in an unsuccessful attempt to create a private hunting preserve. Like, he basically wanted to turn it into... A, his own personal hunting ground. Yes. For him and his little buddies. That's kind of shysty. The main hotel and concert hall were completed in 1909, and the manor was completed in 1910. That's fast. Yes. <laughs> well, back then it wasn't it wasn't as extravagant as it is now. True. In case you guys haven't put two and two together, because we haven't said it yet. We're actually talking about the Stanley Hotel. But, you know. Anyways. I mean, we said Stanley. We said Hotel Stanley. And Hotel. And, and Colorado in three sentences. That's yeah, fine. Not, not everyone knows, okay? <laughs> <laughs> to bring guests from the nearest train depot in the foothills of the town, or foothills town of Lyons, Colorado. Stanley's Car Company produced a fleet of specialty, or dear board, specially designed steam-powered vehicles there you go. called mountain wagons that seated multiple passengers. I'd be down for a mountain wagon. Right. Stanley operated the home almost as a pastime. Okay. Um, stating that he had, he would spend more money than he made each summer. Well, that's not good. No. Upon <laughs> opening, the hotel was alleged to be one of the few in the world powered entirely by electricity. However, lack of available power induced... What? Lack of available... I was yeah. like half asleep when I wrote this. So. Lack of available power induced the installation of an auxiliary gas lighting system. There you go. In June of 1911. Okay. On June 25th, the day after the pipes had been filled, an explosion occurred that injured a maid and damaged the structure. Mm -hmm. Um, 
newspaper articles differ in details. Like one stated that the maid that got injured like was flown from the second story of the hotel, which isn't true. Um, like flown out in a helicopter kind of thing or like no thrown like thrown from okay. the building um oh. didn't she like she fell through the floor into the concert hall or something didn't she oh i think anyway. a brief article telegraphed to the to the york dispatch in pennsylvania and was circulated by the associated press the following day so the Stanley Hotel, built at a cost of $500,000, was partly wrecked last night by an explosion of gas. Eight persons were injured, one seriously. None of the guests were injured. Elizabeth Wilson of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a hotel employee, was hurled at floor, or from the second to the first floor, and both ankles were broken. The other seven are Negro waiters. I hate that. Continue. Yes. <clears throat> if I wasn't quoting it, I would not have said it that way. Um, when the Lancaster paper reprinted the story, the editor noted that Elizabeth Wilson's name did not appear in any local directories, and she could not be identified as a person from Lancaster. Okay. Um, similar accounts in local Colorado papers gave the maid's name as Elizabeth Lambert, and gives more dramatic details that are not confirmed by other articles. So there was just so much speculation. And mm -hmm. The most comprehensive and detailed article on the incident appeared on June 29th in the Fort Collins Express and seems to be the most accurate, positively refuting that the maid had been hurled from the second to the first floor. Okay. The explosion of gas in the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park Sunday night will not interfere with the reception and entertainment of guests was announced by management Monday night. I feel like it kind of would though. Right. Like especially if there's a hole in the floor. Yeah. <laughs> the dining room will be used during the time the big building is undergoing repairs. Okay. And other accommodations will be adequate because of the fact that the damage was confined chiefly to the west end of the building. Management estimated the damage at probably $10,000. Oh, to only be $10,000. Right. <laughs> it was announced that the work of repairing the building will be taken up at once and pushed to completion as rapidly as possible. The explosion was caused by an accumulation of, I don't know how to pronounce it, acetylene? Sure. It's almost spelled like acetone, but with Y-L-E-N-E -E at the end. Um, gas from a leaky pipe. Okay. The gas accumulated in the space between the ceiling of the dining room and the floor of the second story. A chambermaid who was in the room directly above the dining room was in the act of lighting the gas, which, which she held in her hand, ignited the escaping gas. Oh. The explosion which followed tore a huge hole in the floor, 
precipitating great quantities of plaster, timbers, and other debris into the dining room. The chambermaid, Lizzie Leitenberger. So that's, that's a totally third, different name. The third name. <laughs> had both ankles broken. It is thought from the concussion of the explosion. Mm-hmm. And was thrown into a hole in the floor. She was not, however, thrown through into the dining room, being caught by the timbers and held until rescued. So, like, where the floor splintered, she Mm. was stuck in the hole that hadn't fully broken through the floor. That sounds very unfortunate. Yes. She was taken to a hospital in Longmont. She had been in the she had been an employee of the hotel ever since it was built and came from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So we had Elizabeth Lancaster. Elizabeth Wilson of Lancaster. Oh. And Elizabeth Lambert. Mm-hmm. And then Lizzie Leitenberger. And maybe she got married? I don't, I, I don't know. Two waiters also sustained slight injuries, one suffering a dislocated hip and the other being struck across the face by a flying plank. Neither of these, however, is in serious condition. That sounds very <laughs> That was <laughs> quoted from Alfred Lamborn, manager of the hotel, and his wife and daughter and several guests were in the dining room at the time of the explosion, but all miraculously injury. The dining room was badly wrecked and the west end of the building was badly strained out of line from the force of the explosion. Uh-huh. At least 10 large plate glass windows on the ground floor were shattered, as well as several doors which were blown from their hinges. So, the hotel is ordinarily lighted. Here, Lord. By electricity from a private plant in the neighborhood. But the generator in this plant showed signs early Sunday afternoon of giving trouble Sunday night. Okay. So, preparations were made to put the auxiliary lighting system to work. Right. Which is what ended up being the issue. Yeah. The generating plant for the system is located in Stanley Manor, and the big building had just been piped for the gas Uh like the previous winter, and the pipes had never been filled with gas until that day. Oh. Yeah. That's um that's not good. No. The Stanley Hotel National Register Historic District contains eleven contributing structures, including the main hotel, concert hall, a carriage house, the manager's cottage, gatehouse and the lodge, mm-hmm. a smaller bed and breakfast originally called Stanley Manor. Um, the buildings were designed by F.O. Stanley with the professional assistance of Denver architect T. 
T. Robert Weicker, Henry Lord Cornwallis Rogers, and contractor Frank Kirkhoff. Okay. The site was chosen for its vantage overlooking the Estes Valley and Long's Peak within the National Park. The main building, concert hall, and manor house are steel frame structures on foundation <laughs> on foundations of random rubble, granite with clapboard siding and asphalt shingled roof. Okay. Originally, Stanley chose a yellow color building's exteriors mm-hmm. with white accents and trim. Obviously, if you've seen the Stanley, that's not the no. color they went with. <laughs> uh, lumber used in the structures was harvested from the areas of Bierstadt Lake and Hidden Valley in the future National Park and purchased from Kirkhoff's Lumber Yard in Denver okay. and Bluff City Lumber Company of Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Um, the granite was quarried from the Baldwin property near the near Beaver Brook and the Big Thompson River. Non-local material. What is wrong with you tonight? Talk. Non-local materials were brought to Lyons, Colorado by rail and then to Estes Park. Okay. We're going into more of like the architecture mm-hmm. of the building. So, upon opening in 1909, the hotel was alleged to be one of the first in the country to be fully electrified, from the lighting to the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, to supply his hotel with power, Stanley, Stanley led the construction of the Fall River Hydro Plant, which also brought electricity to the town of Estes Park for the first time. So... Every guest room had a telephone, and each pair of rooms shared an ensuite bathroom with running water. The hotel contrasts sharply with the rustic style used for the other hotels in Estes Park before and after the Stanley's construction. So, it's not an uncommon choice for a hotel of the Stanley's size and quality in the time period, but... In general, like the colonial revival symbolized the historical roots of the modern American cultural values and the positive progress of American civilization. Okay. The floor plan of the main hotel was laid out to accommodate the various activities popular with the American upper class at the turn of the 20th, 20th century, and the spaces were decorated accordingly. The music room, for instance, with its cream colored walls picture windows and fine classical plaster work was designed for letter writing during the day and chamber music at night. Chamber music? Yeah. On the other hand, the smoking lounge, which today is the pinion room, and the adjoining billiard room with their dark stained wood elements and granite art fireplace were designed for the enjoyment by like the male guests. Okay. Um, Stanley himself, having been raised in a conservative household um, and having recovered from serious lung disease, didn't cigars or drink alcohol, 
but these were essential after-dinner activities for most men at the time. Billiards, however, was among Stanley's most cherished pastime. So he liked to play pool. Um, the buildings did not have central heating or a ventilation system. The structure was designed to facilitate natural airflow. The paladin window at the top of the grand stair could be opened to introduce a cross breeze through the lobby. French doors in all public spaces opened onto verandas. And two curving staircases connecting at the guest corridors prevent stagnant air in the upper floors. So the main hotel is now heated in the winter. But guests still depend on natural ventilation for cooling in the summer. Right. Um, within a few years of opening, a hydraulic elevator was put into operation. Cool. In 1916, the east wing of the <coughs> building had extended from the rear, adding several more guest rooms. Around this time, the alcove in the music room was added. Um, in 1921, a rear veranda was enclosed, forming a room that currently serves as a gift shop, which you will have to go to if you decide that you're going to go. And you have to bring them back. Duh. <clears throat> Around 1935, the hydraulic elevator system was replaced with a cable-operated system and extended to the fourth floor, um, which prompted the addition of a second cupola to the house for the mechanical apparatus. Um... In 1983, a service tunnel was excavated and connected the basement level corridor to the staff entrance. Um, the concert hall, which is east of the hotel, was built by Stanley in 1909 with the assistance of Lord Cornwallis Rogers. Lord Cornwallis. <laughs> it was supposedly built as a gift for his wife, Flora. The interior is decorated in the same manner as the music room in the main hotel and vaguely resembles that of the Boston Symphony Hall. Once called Stanley Manor, the smaller hotel between the main structure and the concert hall is a two to three scaled down version of the main hotel. Unlike its cool. model, the manor was fully heated from completion in 1910, which may indicate that Stanley planned to use it as a winter resort when the main building for the season. Makes sense. All right. So now we're going to move on to what I guess made the hotel like stupidly famous. Okay. In 1974, during their brief residency in Boulder, Colorado, horror writer Stephen King and his uh-huh. wife Tabitha Spent one night at the Stanley. One night. Just the one. That's all it took. Just the one. It's fine. The visit is known entirely through interviews given by King, in which he presents different, differing narratives of the experience. At the time of his visit, King was writing a book with the working title Dark Shine, set in an amusement park, but he was not satisfied with the setting. Dark Shine. Or the title. If you know anything about Stephen King, he's known for fucking off-the-wall titles. I mean, yeah, but <laughs> that's kind of yeah it, it was, out there. It was lackluster. Yeah. 
It sounds like a um. That sounds like something Gordon would make up. <laughs> I was thinking like you know space themed or something well, like that. that. <laughs> uh, according to George Bean <laughs> Stephen King companion. On the advertisement of locals who suggested a resort hotel located in Estes, an hour's drive away to the north, Stephen and Tabitha King found themselves checking into the Stanley Hotel just as its other guests were checking out, because the hotel was shutting down for the winter season. After checking in, and after Tabitha went to bed, King roamed the halls and went down to the hotel bar, where drinks were served by a bartender named Grady. As he returned to his room, room 217 mm-hmm. his imagination was fired up by the hotel's remote location its grand size and its eerie desolation when king went into the bathroom and pulled back the pink curtain for the tub which had claw feet he thought what if somebody died here <laughs> and at that moment i knew i had a book i often think that to myself when i go to a hotel room <laughs> What I happened mean, in this room? I Did mean, someone die know. here? Have the and, sheets been cleaned properly? Right. <laughs> I will not walk in a hotel room barefoot. I don't think I ever have. I've always wore like flip flops or something. I at least have socks on. Yeah. I will not walk in a hotel room barefoot. You don't know what happened on that floor, and I will bet you my paycheck that, that they have not been cleaned right. properly. Right. <laughs> In a 1977 interview by the Literary Guild, King recounted, While we were living in Boulder, we heard of this terrific old mountain resort hotel and decided to give it a try. But when we arrived, they were just getting ready to close for the season and we found ourselves the only guests in the place. With all those long, empty corridors. Uh uh King and his wife were served dinner in an empty dining room accompanied by canned orchestra music canned orchestra yeah hold please canned orchestra music i don't know like was it creepy was it weird canned music may refer to elevator music pre-recorded music oh that's not no what I was thinking. That's not what I was thinking either. Anyway, <laughs> except for our table, all of the chairs were up on the table. So the music is echoing down the hall. And I mean, it was like God had put me there to hear that and see those things. And by the time I went to bed that night, I had the whole book of The Shining mm-hmm. in my mind. You know that my husband doesn't know because he's lame. <laughs> I honestly didn't expect him to fight that hard when I told him we couldn't be friends anymore. (laughs) I didn't expect him to make the comments that he did. Well. In another retelling, King said, I dreamed of my three-year-old son running through corridors, looking back over his shoulder, eyes wide, screaming. He was being chased by a fire hose. I woke up with a tremendous jerk, sweating all over, within an inch of falling out of bed. I got up, lit a cigarette, sat in a chair, looking out the window of the Rockies. And by the time that cigarette was done, I had the bones of The Shining firmly set in my mind. Okay. But what 
kind of drugs were you on when you went to sleep? That it a was fire the 70s. hose. Come on, Bill. <laughs> You're probably doing blotter acid at that point. <laughs> that a fire hose was chasing your three-year-old down right. the hallway. That, that's like something <laughs> that's I would some have Alice in Wonderland. About, shit. You know, because firefighter, you know. But that's some Alice in Wonderland <laughs> shit. <laughs> the Shining, anyway, The Shining was published in 1977 and became the third great success of King's career after Carrie and Salem's Lot, both. Uh, uh, amazing books. Fantastic books. <sighs> the movies, not so much. Like, I get so pissed because the first Carrie was fit, good. You cannot fit everything from a Stephen King book in a movie. In Absolutely a not. fucking movie. And it drives me nuts. <laughs> the first Carrie was decent. I didn't mind it. But the newest one was too much Given for me. when the movie came out, it was very, very wonderfully made. But Again, it left out a lot of key points right. and things that you just shouldn't have had to overlook to squeeze it into a hour and 20 right. minute movie. So, <clears throat> the primary setting is an Colorado resort named the Overlook Hotel, which closes for the winter. In the front matter of the book, King tactfully states some of the most beautiful resort hotels in the world are located in Colorado. But the hotel in these pages is based on none of them. The overlook and the people associated with it exist wholly in the author's imagination. Well, is it though? Just saying. In addition to serving as the Overlook Hotel in Stephen King's 1997 TV miniseries version of The Shining, the Stanley also served as a fictional, or as the fictional. Hotel Danbury of Aspen, Colorado, in the 1994 film Dumb and Dumber. Oh! Uh -huh. I didn't know that. Yeah. And maybe Jeremy would know that. It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me. And either. it would make me very angry if that's how he knew the Stanley. <laughs> Despite a peaceful early history in the years following the publication of The Shining, the Stanley Hotel gained a reputation as a setting for paranormal activity. It has hosted numerous paranormal investigators and appears in shows such as Ghost Hunters and Ghost Adventures. Shocker. I'll take Ghost Hunters over Ghost Adventures <laughs> right. any day. The hotel also offers guided tours which feature spaces reputed to be exceptionally active. Throughout the years, there have been many discussions revolving around the spirits of the Stanley. Individuals who have worked at the hotel or as part of the hotel, as well as the... Uh, th 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 <laughs> yeah. My covering got stuck on my lip. <laughs> it appears that the spirits seem to linger in and around the facility have no true malicious intent. It appears that the spirits simply enjoy the location or are attached to the location for one reason or another. While they are startling to the people who experience them, guests can rest assured that they will not be harmed by the spirits of the Stanley Hotel. Two spirits that are said to reside within the hotel are none other than F.O. Stanley himself, as well as his lovely wife, Flora. <laughs> it is not uncommon for guests and employees to reflect the experience of seeing the happy couple moving along through the corridors together 
or to live in a room in the structure engaging in activities that they enjoyed while alive. For example, F.O. Stanley enjoyed playing billiards and socializing in the bar area. Many have claimed to see his spirit in these two locations. He also loved to stand in the lobby area and greet the guests to his Rocky Mountain Resort. Today, many have witnessed his apparition in the lobby, attempting to welcome the living that elects to visit him in his prized structure. Hi, me. I swear to God, if you go and you don't There's... bring me back something. We're not going. Rude. I know. I want to go. <laughs> Nobody else knows what it is. So, I'm the odd man out. Flora, on the other hand, seems to have her own agenda. In life, she thoroughly enjoyed playing the piano and is still available at the building. Like the piano that she played? Yes. She would spend hours playing melodies that were delightful to the ears of the guests or doing performances in the immense ballroom. Today, it appears as if she still loves creating sounds that the guests will enjoy. Many have witnessed the keys of her famous piano moving with no assistance from anyone or anything. Which, you know, they do make ghost pianos that play themselves. Yeah. That'd be a hell of a place to put a piano that does that. Right. <laughs> the faint sounds of delightful music can be heard throughout the Stanley, yet... There is no explanation. Many have even claimed that they have actually seen the spirit of Flora Stanley sitting at her piano. Even in death, it does not seem that Flora has lost her knack for entertaining. On the fourth floor of the Stanley Hotel, there seems to be a wealth of paranormal activity that occurs on a regular basis. Guests and employees alike who have been on this floor to stay or to perform housekeeping and maintenance duties I claim that they often hear sounds of children playing. You know, the twins. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> the sounds are not faint sounds. They sound as if they are actually playing in the halls, running, laughing, talking, and even playing with ball. Upon inspection, no children are present. Many have even experienced an encounter of a child spirit on the fourth floor. Um... One of the most famous of these incidents is when Stephen King stayed in a room on another floor in room 217. He, er, It has been said that he witnessed a small boy who appeared to be in distress calling out for his nanny. I haven't seen anywhere that he actually recounts that. I don't know how true that is, but he had to think of the, tw- of the twins somehow. So, I mean, it could be true. He also has a very twisted mind. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder how much weed he smokes. I'm going to say a lot. There's probably some LSD up in there. Like, he can't even, <laughs> like, he can't even watch his own movies. I wonder why! Like, he can cameo in them all he wants. But he can't actually, like, watch them because he he's actually scared of the dark. I, like, fucking terrified. Oh, shit. I would not want to watch my own oh, movies if sorry. I had that brain either. So. <laughs> so, in addition to seeing the spirit of a male child, Stephen King and his wife had another interesting experience in room 217. Um, they placed their belongings in their room and they stepped out to enjoy dinner. When they returned, they had been placed neatly in the dresser drawers and hung in the closet. No employee of the Stanley had engaged in that activity. 
However, there's a story of a maid that worked for the Stanley Hotel that had an emotional attachment to room 217. She is even sometimes seen walking in the room and then disappearing into thin air in front of guests and employees alike. A. I welcome you to put my clothes away. That's very nice of you. B. (laughs) If I see a ghost of a maid in my fucking room at 3 a.m., I will probably piss my bed, so you better have some fucking sheets in your hand. (laughs) Okay. I'm just saying. Oh my gosh. Okay. So. That he looked at her. I, I, I literally thought that I had lost a paragraph. Just by scrolling. So in the year that the gas leak occurred, mm-hmm. the maid at the time had no idea that the leak was happening. She was making her rounds on the second floor, lighting the lamps that used oil at the time. Mm-hmm. And she lit the lamp in the room marked 217. Everything exploded around her. That'll do it. Yeah. I mean, at least she's not all marred up. and Right. At least she's still so, in one piece, I suppose. A hole developed in the floor of the room and the maid fell. He covered her, or F.O. Stanley covered her medical expenses, gave her a well-deserved promotion, offered her additional pay, and allowed her to stay in the hotel rent-free. She continued to work for the hotel for 40 more years after the incident, but it's believed that she, her spirit still walks the halls. I mean, putting the clothes of guests away, cleaning, and making herself known to those who stay and work within the structure. I probably would have stayed too. Yeah. I mean, it's not like anything happened intentionally to hurt right. her. Right. It wasn't like malicious or anything like that. But to have my medical bills paid, to have a free place to live. Right. Because you know she couldn't have afforded that. Back then, hell no. Depending on what she actually had wrong and everything like that. Sorry. I even took like a power nap. Yes, you did. Nothing. Even drinking red. And I had coffee today. What's wrong? Pregnancy. That's what's wrong with you. Yeah, pretty much. What are we on to? Onion parasite? Yes. <laughs> it is the size of a white onion this week. Last week it was an avocado. Avocado parasite. Next week, I don't know what it will be. Grapefruit. Ten bucks. Eh, maybe. Mm. No. I'd say a white onion and an apple were about the same size, I think. Yeah. A normal sized apple. A normal-sized onion. Because the one that I cut up for dinner was, like, massive. It was <laughs> huge. Mondo onions. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you can find us on Facebook at... Uh... Shit. <laughs> <laughs> really? Ten zero. True crime and paranormal stories from behind the headset. There you go. You can find us on Instagram at 10 underscore zero underscore podcast, all spelled out. You can find us on Twitter at 10 underscore zero underscore podcast. Or no. Yes. With the numbers instead of it spelled out. Yes. Um, 
we have a Patreon if you're feeling generous that have four different levels of goodies for you to um, receive. Um, we have our Square site where we have decals that I'll be putting the stickers up eventually, as I've been saying for months. Um, like these stickers are really, really cool. Like I have one of them on my laptop, and because I'm slow. Well, <laughs> I was trying to be nice. Anyway, um, we have an email ten zero podcast at gmail dot com if you want to send us your personal stories because we want to start doing listener stories once a month at least, or um, cases you want to hear us cover, like Rusty's from last week. Yes. Um, oh, by the way, Jared, thank you for Bell Gunness. I completely forgot about that one. That's one of my friends from. I was um, like, what did I miss? No. <laughs> <laughs> one of my friends from Syracuse um, reminded me of it, so that's why I did it. Um, 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 oh, our giveaway. Um, if we reach 250 on instagram and was it twitter or facebook 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 for a total of 500 likes um we will do a giveaway for a personalized tumbler yeah. and possibly a sticker pack um if we get 250 on every platform that we'll do a giveaway for a cool ass bleach tie-dyed hoodie with our logo on it yes because they are super fucking and those are extremely limited edition. There are only two of them in existence. I even told my mom she couldn't have one. Oh. Mama was salty. She, she was pissed. <laughs> I go, I mean, if you want to, you know, like us on Facebook, Twitter, <laughs> and Instagram. You, you tried to bribe her. <laughs> I did. I was like, so... She goes, what do I have to do to get a hoodie like that? Because it's your podcast and blah, blah, blah. And I go, well, you'll have to like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. <laughs> but I don't have Twitter. And she goes, the fuck's Twitter? <laughs> I'm like, well. If you guys could do us a favor and whatever platform you listen to us on, if you wouldn't mind leaving us a review so we can reach more people, that would be absolutely fantastic. Yes. And we would love you forever. I mean, we already do. But, but we'll just love you that much more. Yeah. <sighs> and with well, that, stay safe. And try not to become the next 10-0. <laughs>